start making our way to our seats. And as we do that, if, you, uh, if you're where you have a couple, you can kind of scooch in a little bit. We do have some folks that come in a little late. If you see some chairs around you, or you and your family can get a little tighter, that helps sometimes for our greeters to help folks find seats. We appreciate that. Very good. Welcome, welcome to Gateway Baptist Church. Great to see everybody this morning, this beautiful day. Fall has arrived, and it is awesome. Just got a few announcements I want to make you aware of in the life of our body, what's going on. Uh, today at 4.30 here in the sanctuary is our time of prayer. Um, it's every other week, led by Greg and Cecilia Teal, so we encourage you if you want to come. And the Holy Spirit leads in a lot of different ways to pray for our body, things in our community, things all over the world. So it's here today, 4.30 here in the sanctuary. Fathers and sons, big backpacking trip coming up. You guys excited? I know some of the boys know. Um, they're going to be going to the Sipsy Wilderness, November 10th and 11th, that Friday and Saturday. Um, it's open to boys five and up, teenage sons, father sons, to get together. Details and registration are on our website at gatewaybaptist.com. So uh, I'm very excited, uh, Grady and Mike Presley. Uh, Mike's going too, right? You and Mike? Um, Y'all, there are, there are camping leaders. These guys are just ruthless. They get out there. So very excited for you guys. Hit the wilderness. November 10th and 11th, Friday and Saturday. So you guys register so you guys can prepare with food and other things to get ready for that. Also, just another reminder, for Operation Christmas Child is in the works. We have boxes out in the hallway. Very excited about that. Uh, the boxes are due back by November 19th for us to take them as they prepare their way to get to Atlanta to start hitting across the world. So brochures are in the hall, info on the website on how to pack them. I'm sure a lot of you guys know already know how to do it, but we have plenty of boxes still left in the hall. Lastly, this is a few months out, but we need uh, the uh, college-age students and all to know that something happens in two weeks. So Pastor Grady and Parker Harris are leading a group to uh, January 2nd through the 5th to Louisville for a cross-con conference for those who are 18 to 25 years old. Uh, it's a conference with speakers like David Platt, John Piper, Shailen, and others. Uh, it's very missions-focused, but this year is focusing on living life for God's purposes. All the details and registration are on the website as well. But for anybody 18 to 25, registration needs to be done within two weeks just to get the tickets um, for a certain price and to prepare the way. So check your calendars, um, all of you, the college students and all, and those you don't have to be in college, just in that age group, uh, to be able to go. It's going to be a really fun time, and I may go with you. So. I'm 54, but I can still go. I mean, he's in his 40s. I mean, these conferences are awesome. I love it. You get fired up. So, deadline to register is in two weeks, November 6th. Okay. And lastly, but not least, very excited. Our brother John, one of our deacons here, is going to come up, share a wonderful opportunity for a missions trip, and to give us an update on what God's sending him to do. All right. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is John Glasscock, and uh, I am one of the deacons here. Uh, also, I'm going to be stepping back behind the cage in a second to drum. Uh, but I wanted to share with you an opportunity that I have uh, to go on a mission trip with the International Mission Board coming up in two weeks. I'll be leaving on November the 2nd to fly into Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, where I'll be uh, part of a team with five other people uh, who... I have no clue who they are. I've never met them before in my life. Uh, but what we're going to be doing is we're going to be coming together as a team 
uh, to reach out to people who are in Copenhagen. We're going to be uh, doing outreach and work with a church there uh, called uh, New Song Kirken. Uh, it's led by a Swedish pastor, uh, and it's a Southern Baptist church there in the city of Copenhagen. And we're going to be doing just some general outreach, but also we're going to be doing um, some. Uh, we're going to be doing two meals uh, for. Uh, to uh, two different locations in the city. We're going to be doing it at uh, a Christian school where the church actually meets and uh, then at a uh, language school uh, that teaches Danish to immigrants. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of different opportunities to, uh, to meet with people and have uh, conversations. Uh, but we're going to be doing two full uh, American-style Thanksgiving uh, lunches. Um, and uh, I don't know if you know anything about Denmark, but Denmark is a... Uh, it's a country, it's in northern Europe, it's right north of Germany uh, and south of uh, Norway and Sweden. And uh, there's five million people in the country and it's a pretty developed nation. Uh, it is, um, it has Christian heritage. Um, the uh, Lutheran church is um, kind of still the state church. And there's 80% of the population that belong to the church but only 2% who attend church on a regular basis. Uh, so while those um, traditions are still there, uh, I believe what I read is 50% of the population is agnostic, and they don't really see any kind of need for God at all. So what our hope is is that as we go and uh, meet with these people and have these gospel conversations, that we're going to open some doors to uh, make some differences in people's lives. So two things. Number one, if you can pray for our team. Uh, that we would all have safe traveling mercies over there and get there uh, in one piece and that we would be able to gel together really quickly and uh, to be able to minister in Christ's name. Uh, but number two, I set up a, a GoFundMe uh, fundraiser. Now that fundraiser is not going to go for the cost of my trip at all. It's already been paid for. Uh, what I'm hoping to do is to raise some money that's going to help offset uh, the cost of those meals. Uh, Food is extremely expensive in Copenhagen. It's um, one of the most expensive cities in the world uh, to live in. It's like the 10th most expensive city in the world. Uh, so I would like to be able to take some money over there to kind of bless that church uh, and to be able to further what we're doing uh, in the ministry. Uh, so if that's something that you think you might be interested in, uh, I'm going to be... Um, Again, back there uh, after church is over. Uh, so if you want to come and talk to me, uh, I'd love to share the details with you and give you an opportunity to uh, be a part of that. So thanks. Thank you, John. I'm very excited for you and the trip. So let's stand together and prepare our hearts to worship the Lord through song and to worship Him. I just want to encourage us with this scripture. I love this passage where Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, declares the glory of God. This is from Daniel chapter 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, extol, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's worship our king of heaven this morning. Let's sing this together. 
Oh, praise Him, hallelujah, oh, 
Precious brothers and sisters, that these gospel truths we've just proclaimed would be very near and dear to our hearts. Not just things we affirm with our minds, but truths that capture our heart and our soul. And that we be a people who long to worship you for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We get the joy this morning of learning a new song from our first through sixth graders. Now, you've heard me say that a while back that Justin and I were at a conference that Keith and Kristen Getty put on. And in the middle of the conference, they taught us a new song called I Am Not My Own. And in the middle of the song, I couldn't wait. I actually texted Miss Laurie, who works with our kids. And I texted Molly and said, we've got to teach this to the kids and we've got to sing it. And so we're excited to introduce you a new song. This is a song written by Sky Peterson. Some of you know Andrew Peterson. He's a Christian musician and author of kids' books. His daughter, who's in her 20s, wrote a song. She's a composer as well. And it's a song, this beautiful truth, I am not my own. Now, one reason we teach the kids to sing, and one reason we sing as a church, yes, is to glorify God. That's the main reason. But friends, songs stick with us. I can't even tell you my main idea from three weeks ago, the sermon I preached. You probably can't either. But we remember songs. So as we sing, as we sing songs, as we teach our kids songs, and we sing them as families, and we sing them in church, these truths stick in our hearts and souls. And so I think you'll see why I'm so excited for our boys and girls to have learned this song, but also why I want all of us to know this song as well. So first to sixth graders, if you want to come on up here, we want to learn I Am Not My Own. Miss Laurie's going to be on the piano playing with them. We have to scoot the podium back even more. <laughs> so boys and girls, you get to lead us in worship. We are singing unto the Lord of His greatness and singing these truths about who He has made us to be. And we look forward to you teaching this truth to us.
I can close in prayer right now, and we would be good. Amen. That was precious. Let's... After kids' words? Yeah. Sure. After I pray, we'll, I'll release them after that. Okay. <laughs> Some of the kids knew where to go after something like that. Let's go before the Lord. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for what we just heard. God, thank you for that declaration that we belong to the Lord and we are not our own. God, I pray that that is something each of us in this room, we recognize that our lives are affected by that. The fact that what we declare that we belong to you, that we're not, that means you own us. You gave your life. The word says you shed every drop of your blood to purchase us through your atoning sacrifice. Lord, may our lives reflect that, that we recognize you can do anything you want with us because we are your possessions. And we want to please you and love you, not out of duty, but out of delight as we experience your joy and loving grace on a daily basis. Thank you for these precious children. Thank you, Lord, for Lori and all the children's um, volunteers and Miss Molly and everyone who sows into these precious kids. God, we thank you for them all. Those that do kids' worship, those that teach Sunday school, all those that serve in the nursery in different capacities on Wednesday nights to love on these children, to show them the love and grace and mercy of Jesus. God, we pray as they declare those words that that would take deep root in their hearts. I know many of these kids know you, love you. You have saved them. They place their faith and trust in you. Some are in the process of getting to know you and you drawing them to yourself. God, we pray for their salvation. We pray you would continue to reveal yourself to their hearts, to bring them to a place of conviction and repentance and understanding of who you are. And Lord, as we were worshiping this morning and even hearing that song, my heart was just so burdened. And just a reminder, God, of so many of us in this room, every one of us, none of us are exempt where we know one loved one or multiple loved ones or uh, co-workers or people, dear friends of ours that are lost, that don't know that love and grace and mercy of yours, that they do not belong to you. And God, I just pray right now that we take a moment as you've surfaced everyone in this room. I know a name right now has come to mind or multiple names. Someone we love dearly, we cherish, friend, family, co-worker, Lord, you hear those names right now. I have my own where my heart grieves and is burdened for them. I pray all the time. So just collectively together in unity, God, we lift up those names to you. In the name of Jesus, those that we love and care for and are grieved by and burdened by, God, we want those individuals to know your saving grace, to know your love and mercy. We pray in the name of Jesus that they would be convicted of their sins, that you would bring them to a place of repentance, that you would take the blinders off their eyes, that they would see for who you really are, that they would repent and come to saving faith, to know that love we've sung about, that grace, that mercy. And we thank you that's the God that you are, the God who saves. And we just lift them up to you right now. And God, use us in their lives on a daily basis, however we, many times we see them. And maybe family members we don't see very often, but we, have a, we can make a phone call that we would be salt and light and your ambassadors. Continue, God, to give us wisdom and discernment in conversations with them that they would see and know your love and grace through our lives. That's what you've called us to do, to be your ambassadors, to represent you well. And we thank you for the opportunity you give us. 
Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to pray and lift up individuals in our city and, and churches. And Lord, we thank you for Pastor Samuel and new life in Christ that meets here right after us and on this campus for over 10 years now. We thank you, God, for their ministry. We thank you for their love of their community, the Hispanic community that they're reaching out to, to bring the gospel to and to disciple. Continue, Lord, to bless them, give them wisdom and discernment with their leadership, all that they need to provide. God, just give them just unique ways in all their spheres of influence to be salt and light and to bring those into the fold that they can experience your love and mercy. And we thank you for them being on this campus that we can partner with them. God, we continue to ask for your just supernatural intervention on this planet. There is so much unrest, so much conflict here in our own nation, in the Middle East. This is nothing new to you. It's been going on for centuries. But God, we pray for right now, for such a time as this, that you would intervene in a supernatural way for the sake of your glory, your name, your renown, for your gospel to go forward. That we can see and reap a harvest according to your word. That all that's going on, that we don't need to fear, that we can trust you in these situations. But God, I do pray that each of us in this room would be burdened with a heart of intercession that we would stand in the gap between death and life, light and darkness, chaos and peace for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of souls across this planet and all that's going on right now, that we would be warriors of prayer, that you would give us wisdom and discernment in that way, Lord, to lift up what's going on and to be prepared for what's going to happen according to your will and your purposes. Lord, we thank you for this gathering. We thank you for your provision. You're a good God. You've provided so much for us. We pray your blessings upon what was given today and online. Lord, we thank you that you have entrusted your resources to us to use for your kingdom's sake. Continue to give leadership and staff wisdom on how to facilitate your resources as we're preparing the budget for next year, God. Just speak to us. Give us guidance on where you desire your money, your resources to go for the sake of your kingdom. And Lord, again, we thank you so much for Grady. Thank you for his heart. I personally, Lord, thank you so much for his friendship as my brother in Christ and my friend, being able to work with him daily here in this office. Lord, we laugh, we share life together, we cry together. We get to shepherd together. We thank you for his, just his love of your word. I see him faithfully, God, digging in your word, wanting to be able to see the, and he understands the weight of it, understand the weight of his calling. And I thank you for that that he comes up here every week in humility, knowing that he wants you to speak. We want your word to go forth. And we thank you for his heart to do that, to shepherd us, to love us, to serve us, to protect us as our shepherd. Continue to bless him with strength and energy as he comes today. We praise you and thank you. And as Nebuchadnezzar declared, you are good, you are exalted. We honor you today as the King of kings and Lord of lords, our King of heaven. Continue to have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And boys and girls, first to fourth grade, if you haven't already left for kids to worship and would like to go, you can head that way now. So first to fourth graders. Well, while the boys and girls are on the move there, if you will find Genesis chapter 2 in your copy of God's Word. Genesis chapter 2 in your copy of God's Word. As we continue our year-long journey to the first 11 chapters of Genesis, these essential foundations of our faith as we see more of who God is and who we are and his plans for us, his people. Now, as you find Genesis 2, I want to ask you this morning, what do you feel about your work? 
What do you feel about work in general? What do you feel about having to work? Now, before our college students, teenagers, and children in the room check out on this, going, oh, good, this is for mom and dad today, this is for you as well, because you have work too, and it's called schoolwork, and it's called housework with your parents, right? So boys and girls and teenagers, how do you feel about your work, your schoolwork, your chores that you get to do? For all of us, what is our attitude to work? But let's broaden that a little bit beyond our vocations. How do you feel when someone asks you to work with them to help them move that piece of furniture up the stairs of their house, assist with their project that they're doing, or moms and dads, when your kids ask you to help make a a poster on photosynthesis for them, how do you feel when someone asks you to work with them to help them? How do you feel when the church asks you to work to help, to work with our kids or our youth, to host a life group, to help provide security, to help be on the greeting team? But even more broadly, what do you feel about the routine work you do for life? Housework, yard work, fixing your computer, laundry work, cooking work, cleaning work, repairing your car, all the different types of work that go into life. So with that big picture view, what is your view, your perspective on work? Now I ask that because that's what our text today is all about. It helps us know God's perspective on work. And again, I'm not just talking about our vocation, our job, so that's part of it, but work in general in life. Genesis shows us in all these foundational truths God's perspective on work and our lives being full of work of various types. Today we're looking at just one verse this morning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. As we read this one verse, I want you to look for what is God's perspective on work. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Can I ask you to stand please in honor of the reading of the Word of God? I'll read out of the English Standard Version. We also will have the words on the screen. Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you once again that you've given us your word. God, that you have not left us wondering who you are, who we are, your plans for our life. And Lord, I thank you we get to dig into it together as a community this morning. So would you guide us, would your Holy Spirit fill us to give us eyes of understanding, ears of understanding to know the truth you have for us. And would you shape it this morning, shape all of us this morning. Lord, do you know how easy it is for all of us to have a wrong view of work? Where some of us here struggle with living for our work, struggle with the idolatry of work, finding our identity in our work. Or there's some here today who struggle with seeing work as a curse, as a necessary evil. There's some here who perhaps even hate doing work in general. But Lord, for wherever our struggles are with understanding work, Lord, you have spoken to us. And God, we thank you for that. So use your word today to give us understanding of your plans for us, for this life that you've called us to live. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, to understand what God is saying here to us about work, we need to understand the context. Now, you know this. You've heard me say it many times before, but context is so important we understand Scripture. There's always a danger of looking at one verse of Scripture isolated without understanding the context in which we find it. So there's two things related to the context of verse 15 that we're looking at this morning to make sure we understand it. First of all, we need to understand what has just come before us, what we studied last week in verses nine to four, sorry, verses 8 to 14 last week. And it's summarized really in verse 9. So look back up at verse 9 in Genesis 2 for what we saw last week. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life is in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So right before our text today is these ver- are these verses about this vivid descriptions of the garden. But if you remember, these descriptions of the garden were not there just for our curiosity's sake. All those verses we saw last week were all about God providing for his people. 
that God is a generous provider who loves providing for his people. And so in those verses we looked at last week in 8 to 14, we saw that God provides for our physical needs. He delights in giving us food and water and what we need. We saw that God provides for our emotional needs and he gives us beauty. And that's just one example of many ways God provides for us emotionally. And God provides for our spiritual needs, the reminders that he is God and we are not, his presence with us. We saw that God provides for us holistically. So that's verses 8 to 14. When we come to verse 15 today, it's not just like a sudden change in thought. This verse about work is still about God's generous provision for his people. This is still about God knowing what we need and providing for us. And what do we need? Verse 15, coming right off all these verses about God's provision, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So our calling to be involved in work all throughout our life is part of God's generous good provision for us. So friends, have you ever considered work as a basic life need? Because that's what we're seeing right here. Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, one of the best books I've read about understanding work, says this. He says, work is as much a basic need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, or prayer. It is not simply medicine, but food for our soul. Without meaningful work, we sense significant inner loss and emptiness. People who are cut off from work because of physical or other reasons quickly discover how much they need work to thrive emotionally, physically, and spiritually. God made us, friends, to need work. And so our verse today realizes in this context of God's generous provision, his goodness for his people. But also realize that the verse today really connects all the way back up to verse 8. Look back at verse 8. See if this sounds familiar to what we just read. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, it should sound very familiar to what we just read in verse 15 this morning, because verses 9 to 14, you might call them an aside or an interlude. The storyline here is not so much about the garden. The storyline here, this teledot, this section of Scripture, is all about the story of mankind, of humanity, and God's plans for people. So all that talk about the garden we saw last week was really pointed to God providing for us. Verse 15 today picks back up that main storyline of what we see in this part of Genesis. So look at verse 8 and 15 together. Listen to verse 8 again. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. Now verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So this is the same truth, but God just expands on it, builds on what he had already showed us in verse 8. And the emphasis in this verse is all about what God has done for us. This is less about what we do and more about what God has done for us. Because God's not leaving it to our own devices to find our own identity, to find our own view of work. He's told us what he has done for us and what he wants us to do. So what did God do for the first person here? Look back at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Though the world is finished, though the entire world is under Adam's dominion now, though Adam is perfectly formed and perfectly complete, though Adam is with God everywhere he goes in the whole world, God has done something specific here. God has taken Adam and he's placed him in this garden of provision, this perfect garden for him. And notice this word put here. Some of your translations may say God placed him in the garden, but God put him in the garden. This is a Hebrew word that shows intentionality. It shows design. It's not like God thinking of plan B. What do I want to do now? Everything's done. I'll stick Adam over here. This is God's good design of what he was planning to do. But there's something even more significant about this word put. This is a word that's used in Scripture when something is set apart, declared holy to God. It's when something is dedicated or set apart for God. So jump ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 10. And notice how the same word is used here. 
is about bringing sacrifices to God. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall, now the English here says set it. It's the same word here from Genesis 2. You shall put it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And so when you see this word put in Scripture, it's usually used in setting aside something for God's purposes. It's people putting something before God as an offering to Him. But here in verse 15, this is now God putting something somewhere. This is God setting apart something. Maybe I should say setting apart someone for his purposes. God has something special that he's setting apart the first people to do. I love how John Calvin says it. He says, God did not want man to be a useless lump, but that he be useful for doing something. God didn't want man to be a useful, useless lump. I mean, think about it. God is sovereign. He could have made people however he wanted to make people. And he could have made the perfect garden. And he could have had mankind just lay under the trees all day long and be happy just thinking about God all day. That's not how he made the world. God could have made a world where there's just clouds and we float on clouds strumming harps all day. That's not how God made us. God did not want us to be a useless lump. So God gave man something to do. Now, what does God want his people to do? Verse 15 the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Notice this word two. Here's what follows. Here's the reason for why God put man in the garden, why he, why he dedicated Adam and Eve to this task. What did he point us to do? Two things here in verse 15, to work and to keep. To work and to keep. Let's look at each one of those because this is God's plan for all of us. He wants us to be working and keeping. Now, what does it mean to work? Now, friends, this is a stunning assignment from God, and I think we miss the wonder of this. I know I have so often reading through this text. Think about what we were just told about God. Go back to Genesis 2, verse 2. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Why? Because on it God rested from all his work that he had done. Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, that glorious introduction to the book of Genesis, is all about God's work, God working to make the world. And now we saw when we study that that God never stops working. John chapter 5, verse 17, what Jesus said. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. We serve a God who is constantly working, who works to make everything, who works to uphold everything, who is constantly working. So is it any surprise that when God makes people in his image as image bearers, what does he call us to do? To work like he works. So what in the world does it mean to work? Again, verse 15, God places us in the garden, places Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. So what does it mean to work? Now, we talk about this all the time. We, talk, we probably use the word work a multitude of times this week, right? I went to work. I've got schoolwork to do. I've got laundry work that needs to be done. We, we, talk, we use the word work all the time. What does it mean to work? Well, the dictionary simply says work is using physical or mental effort to achieve a purpose. Work is using physical effort or mental effort to achieve a purpose. That means we have a purpose in view, and we exert effort, whether physically or mentally, to make it happen. Another author I was reading said, Work means we invest our time, our energies, our ideas, and our passions into bringing things into being. So we're using our passions, our energy, our thoughts to create things, to make things happen. But what does God want us to be working for? What are the purposes that God has here for us? And it's actually in the word itself, back in verse 15 here. This is fascinating. God put man in the garden to work it. The word for work here is actually a Hebrew word, abad, that literally means to serve. So listen to the verse that way, because this word means to serve. It actually gets translated as serve in other parts of Scripture. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to serve. So who was Adam to serve? He was to serve God, and once God makes other people. He was to serve other people too. Isn't this what Jesus told us? Matthew chapter 22, 
Verses 36 to 39, you know the passage well. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Verse 37, Jesus said to them, You shall love, you shall serve, you shall work, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Verse 38, he carries on. This is the great and the first commandment. Now verse 39, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now you've heard me say it many times before. The question is, what is love? And our culture misunderstands it so often, but love is a choice we make, right, to give of ourself for the good of another. So love is not just some feeling. It's a choice I make to give of myself for the good of another. Love translates to working for the good of other people. Love is serving other people. So go back to our verse this morning. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to serve to serve God, to serve others, to love God, to love others, to work in such a way as to do what God has come to do and to bless other people. So how did Adam serve God and others with his work in the garden? And we're not told, friends. We have to only wonder on that. Perhaps he pruned and beautified and cultivated the garden. Perhaps he picked the fruits to eat once he had a family to give to them. We're not told the specifics, and the reason we're not told is that's not the point. The point here for us is that God wants us to look at this and realize as his image bears, he has called us to love him and love others. He's called us to work for him and to work for others. He's called us to serve him and to serve others. The point here is us seeing the goodness of serving God and serving other people. And to do that through our work. And that's why we see this all throughout the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. We're told to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands, as we have instructed you. Verse 12, why do we work? So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Work is good because it enables us to not be dependent to earn our own living. But work is more than that. Work is so we can bless others and serve others. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, let him work, doing honest work with his own hands, so that, here's the reason we work, we may have something to share with anyone in need. So we work, even in our vocations, not just for us, we work so that we can bless other people. We see in Acts chapter 20, verse 35, and all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, is more blessed to give than to receive. So all the way back in Genesis 2 is the foundation that work is service, service to God and service to others, and we work so that we can be a blessing to others. But instead of the beginning, we're thinking more than just career here, more than just vocation. God calls us to love, to serve, to work in many other ways. That's why, again, all over the New Testament, we see the calling to do good works to other people with our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Notice this again. God is working. He's worked to make us. We are created by God in Christ Jesus for good works. Same as Genesis 2, where he made man to serve, to work. Now, Ephesians 2, he's made us four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should live this way. That's why God has put us for such a time as this, so that we can work for him and work for others. Titus chapter 3, verse 8, you see it as well. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to, who knows this, devote themselves, work hard at this, be intentional about doing good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 as well. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable. This is always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always abounding. Always focus on how do I work for God and for others? How do I love God and love others? That is the calling of our lives. That means our lives should be marked as God's people by joyful work in our jobs, which provide for us and let us bless others 
in the church where we serve one another in community, in relationships in the community where we're eager to serve one another. I don't have it on the screen, but you've heard me read it often. Galatians 6.10, let us do good. Let us work right to everyone, especially to those of the household of faith. So God made us to be involved in work. And so before we move on to the second command, I want to ask us, is that our view of work? Whether it's our vocations, around the house, at school, in the community, here at church, is this how we view work as a joyful opportunity to serve God and to serve other people? But there's a second task given to Adam here. Go back to verse 15 here as well. God put him in the garden. He set him apart. He dedicated him for what? To work and to keep it. So we're to work and to keep. Notice this word keep here. This is a Hebrew word that means literally to guard. So God put Adam in the garden to serve and to guard. He's to guard things. Now, what do we mean by keeping or guarding? There's two things to this. There's two aspects of keeping or guarding. One, in the things you've just worked, guarding means you're sustaining the progress you made. No one wants to work for things and have it come undone. So this is sustaining the progress that you've made. Again, this is what God himself does, right? He creates the world. And what does he do? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he tells us. He is the radiance of the glory of God. This is talking about Christ and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Christ makes the world, and he doesn't throw up his hands and be like, well, we'll let them do whatever they want to do to it. He now sustains the, the progress he made. He sustains the work he made, and that's what we're called to do here as well. We work, and then we sustain the progress we made in our jobs, in our education, in the task. We try to preserve what has been done. There's a second part of keeping and guarding, and this is the part I think we often miss. This involves guarding the people in our lives. The keeping part, the guarding part here is guarding the people in our lives. Again, this is what God does for us. Genesis chapter 28, verse 15, exact same word as keeping here. God says, behold, I am with you and I will keep you. Same word here, shamar in the Hebrew. I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. So God keeps us. He holds us. Psalm 121 is all about God keeping us on this. And so because God keeps us, he guards us, we have the promise of Philippians 1, 6 that you know very well here. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> God keeps us, therefore we have confidence that we will make it to the end. So go back to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden <coughs> to work, to serve, and to keep it, to guard it. So in terms of the relationships, friends, how do we guard the people in our lives? Can I suggest we guard them in two ways? Number one, we guard them from our sin. Of all the people in your life, one of our main tasks is to guard them from our sin. Friends, the greatest threat to your kids, your spouse, your friend, your roommate, your classmates is you. And the greatest threat to my family, to my friends, to my neighbors is me. Our sin is the greatest threat to the people around us. Years ago, one of the most influential books I've ever read is a book from Richard Phillips. And Richard Phillips said in this book, he said, you know, for years I thought if a criminal broke down the door in my house and came charging in, I would jump up and I would guard my family. He said, the Lord convicted me and showed me that the greatest threat coming in my door is not a criminal, but me. When I come through that door with my anger, my impatience, my demanding, my short fuse, whatever word you want to use for it. We are the greatest threat. When we walk in with our unchecked sin to our families, to our friends, is the greatest threat to those around us. So if we're going to do what Genesis 2.15 calls us to do, to keep the relationships in our life, we have to keep people from our own sin. That's why God calls us to so many things in Scripture. But for one example is Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. 
put to death. It says serious words, put to death, therefore, whatever's earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Friends, how many families, how many friendships, how many churches have been wrecked because people who claim the name of Christ have not put to death by God's grace these things in their life? How much have we, how much have I hurt my family and you hurt your family and friends when we come through with our covetousness, our desires, our passions, which James warns us about, and we hurt those closest to us? If we're going to follow this command to work and to keep, we have to keep those in our care, our friends and family and church family and neighbors. We have to keep them from our own sin. There's a second aspect of keeping here that Genesis 2 is about, and that's we have to guard them from their own sin. We have to guard them from their own sin. Friends, we are all so blind to our sinful tendencies. We all have such blinders up, and we're so quick to not think we're really struggling in areas that we really are. And so God gives us the grace gift of community to help us see our sins so that we can grow in godliness. And friends, honestly, in the American culture that we're in, in the church, we stink at this. We stink at helping one another fight sin. And even here at Gateway, we really struggle, I think, to step into this space of helping each other overcome our sins. But notice what God calls us to do. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. This is not a suggestion. This is God's command for us. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Our responsibility with one another is to speak the truth, to speak the gospel, to speak God's plans into each other's life. We should be helping one another know the truth of God in all areas of our life. That's why James tells us in James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. In James 5, 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, that we bring them back by speaking the truth in love, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. God has called us to be keeping one another in the church. So go back to Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work, to serve, and to keep, to guard. And so we guard by valuing holiness. We guard by valuing our own holiness, and we guard by valuing the holiness of those in our Christian community. And that should shape how we pray for one another. That should shape how we live. That should shape how we speak and what we talk about with one another. But notice these two aspects of keeping guarding. Sustaining the progress of whatever we've made and guarding the people God put in our lives. Because these are the two things that Adam fails to do in Genesis chapter 3. He misses the mark on both counts of what guarding looks like. Go ahead to Genesis 3.5. We'll get to this in a month or two, somewhere along the way. In Genesis 3.5, we will eventually get to this. In Genesis 3.5, this is what the serpent says. The serpent enters the garden, this garden to light, this beautiful place God has made. Adam was called to, to work. Adam was called to keep. He was to preserve the holiness of the garden. He was to preserve the beauty of the garden that he was serving in and cultivating. But what happens? A serpent comes in. And the serpent says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam had been called to keep the garden, to guard the garden. And instead of guarding the garden, he didn't kick the serpent out. He listened to the serpent. So he failed to keep by not guarding the garden. But he also failed to guard his wife. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband. Notice this, Who was with her, and he ate. For whatever reason... Adam is not only failing to guard the garden, he's failing to guard his wife. In the moment that the enemy is tempting his wife, for whatever reason, he chose to let her do this instead of guarding her and lovingly speaking the truth into her life. For just as we struggle, sometimes when we see friends in sin, when we see family members in sin, we struggle to say, hey, I love you enough. I want in humility come talk to you about this. We struggle that so did Adam. 
And he watched his wife go into sin, and he followed her into that. Adam failed to keep in both of the ways that this command entailed. So go back to verse 15 here. We have two tasks. The Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That means, friends, his whole life and all of our lives are going to be about serving God and serving others. Whether it's in our vocation at school, in church, in home, in our neighborhood, in our relationships, our lives are about serving God and serving others. It's about guarding ourselves and guarding others. That's why we're told in Colossians 3.23, this beautiful command for us, whatever you do, notice the whatever, whatever means whatever, whether you're at your job, whether you're doing laundry at home, whether you're spending time in a fellowship meal with people at church, whether you're serving in the nursery, whether you're helping your neighborhood with a cleanup project, whatever you do, work heartily. Who? Ask for the Lord and not for men. So whatever we're doing, friends, in whatever context we're doing it, God's good plan for us, his generous provision for us is to work heartily unto him as an act of worship to him. That's why God put us here And this time, that's why we're alive in 2023 in Montgomery, Alabama, because God wants us to be working and keeping in all those spheres of life that we're in right where we are. Because that's why before the fall, when Genesis 2 is happening, there's no sin yet, work was good and work glorified God. This is a garden of delight and work was part of that delight. That's why though now we live in a fallen world, work is still good and it still glorifies God. Yes, it's because of sin, it's hard. Yes, because of sin, there's so many opportunities for us to work and serve and guard. One of the authors I read this week said, Work is a God-given assignment, not a cursed condition. Work is a God-given assignment to me and to you. It's not a cursed condition. And that's why, friends, for all eternity, we will work. Now, this may be a shock to some people, but eternity is not a vacation. It is a promotion. If you think about the parable of the talents that Jesus told in Matthew 25, different resources were given to people, and when the master comes back, it represents Christ returning, they give an accounting for it. And so to the person who had worked well unto the Lord in this parable, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will give you an eternal vacation now where you can sit on a cloud and play your harp. No, I will set you over much enter into the joy of your master. The greater responsibility and eternity given to this person is described as joy. So work existed in the garden before the fall. Work exists now in our fallen, broken world. And work will exist in perfection for all eternity. That means we can find joy in doing it. It's the joy of the master when we work, when we serve under him, when we guard ourselves and guard others as unto him as an act of worship. So let's try to bring all that together now. Here's what I want you to see from this one verse in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It's this, friends. God's generous provision for his people includes his good gift of work, the calling and ability to serve God and to serve others. God's generous provision for us, you and me, his people, includes his good gift of work, our calling, our ability to serve him and to serve others. Friends, God is good. Like we saw last week, God delights in providing for his people. And part of his provision is the, notice this, the grace gift of work. Work is a grace gift. Yes, in our vocation, in our jobs, in service opportunities in the church, in service in the community, and the love you have for people in your life. Work and service towards others is a gift from God in whatever sphere we exercise it. We were made from the beginning to work by serving God and serving others. Therefore, it is good and it is holy and it's right and it glorifies God and it brings us joy. God's generous provision for his people includes his good gift of work, the calling and ability to serve God and serve others. 
So friends, I want to ask you as we close, is that how you view work? Not just your job, not just your schoolwork, but in your relationships, in the church, in the community, do you see the opportunity you have to work as a grace gift from God? Do you see it as an opportunity to serve God and serve others? Do you see work as God's provision and grace to you? Do you see work as God's calling on you? Friends, do you even see your health and strength as a gift from God so you can do what we saw here of working and keeping? God has made us from the very beginning to glorify Him by working and keeping. So let's pray this week that God gives us many opportunities to find joy in serving Him in whatever He has put before us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you show us from your word your plans for us. And Lord, as we said at the beginning, Lord, so many of us struggle with wrong views of work. Whether it's the idolatry of work and finding our identity in our work and getting us so out of balance that we don't work in shepherding our families or we don't work in taking care of other responsibilities. Or for some, it's just a aversion to work. But Lord, you know for each one of us, we all have different places we land on this. Lord, would you meet each of us where we are? Would you bring conviction where each of us need conviction? Would you bring encouragement where each of us need encouragement? Lord, I know there's some in this room who are weary of the work they have. Their work feels overwhelming as they deal with the brokenness of this world. And I pray that you would give them joy in the work they have. Whether it's the work at home, the work at school, the work at their jobs, the work at church, whatever it is, Lord. Would you give them joy in that? Lord, for those who struggle with the idolatry of work and having things out of balance to where they neglect other works they're called to do, other good works because they're so consumed with their job work, would you free them from that? Would you let them understand how loved they are by you that they don't have to keep working to try to earn your approval or the approval of others? They would see the joy of serving in all the different spheres you've put in their life. So wherever we are struggling, we all struggle in different ways, would you meet us right where we are? Would your Holy Spirit this week take this text and bring conviction where we need conviction, encouragement where we need encouragement, so that we may live unto your glory and live a life full of purpose and joy and hope as we walk through this life. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing our closing song as Be Thou My Vision. As we think about the challenge of viewing work rightly, I can't think of a more fitting song as we look to Christ and ask Christ to shape us in all areas of our life. Let's ask the Lord to be our vision for all we do.
That is the prayer of us, your people, today. We want you to be our vision, you to be our wisdom, Lord. We want our soul to be satisfied in you and in you alone. And God, even as we sing that, as we sing that as a prayer, and as we pray that, that we realize we cannot manufacture that. There's nothing I can do 
in my own efforts to have my soul satisfying you. I need you to meet with me and to meet with these brothers and sisters to give us our hungers and affections in you, our satisfaction, you, our vision to you. So this week, would you give us much grace, Lord? Would you give us much overflowing grace to find our satisfaction in you? And from that place of being satisfying you, to work hard unto you, serving you, serving others, guarding ourselves, guarding others. Lord, we need you to create this in us because we can't do it ourselves. So would you do it for your glory and for our joy? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, Gateway family. Have a great Sunday afternoon.